protecting me. You can call me anything else, but I know I'm a son of God. And that's what delights my heart most. And uh, how did I get into this message of the grace of God? Uh, like, I went to a Bible school back then in my earlier Christian walk. When I got into this Bible school, it was a legalistic Bible school. I did a Bible school for two years. But during my time in this Bible school, I began to sense something different when I could compare my notes with what the Bible was saying. So, like a conflict began to spout out within my heart. Like I have a conflict between what I'm learning from the Bible school and what I'm seeing in the Bible. And so when that conflict kept on growing, I remember my prayer was so simple. God, I may not understand everything, but I'm open to whatever you want to show me and what you want to teach me. And so every time I could study the scriptures, I could find I was always uh, on the opposite side of my pastor then. Uh, as a young person who's trying to grow in the Lord and trying to be so zealous for the things of God, I always approached him and asked him a few questions. That I see the Bible is talking about this. And then I see we practice this in church. And then uh, the best he could give me all the time was, I have got demons which are actually now uh, taking me astray. So I got to be careful. So it was always like, now we got to cast out this demon. This young man is getting off the track by these demons. And the questions were very simple because it's like, yes, the Bible is talking about we are saved by grace, but we, what is grace? No, 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 we don't have to go into that. That's not the right thing. Then you're like, but the scripture is there and just I need a little explanation. I'm not even so aggressive of everything. Just want a little bit of it and that will be enough for me. But no, there's something wrong. So, and I kept on asking and I could not find the answers. Then I was like, God, it seems I cannot find answers from this man. But I need the answers because your scriptures are there. So I began to study on my own. Like the grace, the grace of God and his loveliness. Like he kept on opening up the scriptures to me. And I would see something and I got so excited. And in the ex midst of that excitement, I wanted to share it with someone. But every time I could share it with people, I could get a disappointment the excitement that I come with as I'm sharing, oh, look, Jesus has done everything for us now. All people would really just calm me down and say, no, you missed it. So every time I could try to look at, especially what really worked for me most at that time was uh, how Jesus came, lived a life, and died for me. And all my sins were paid for. And then at the end of the day, he is like, he's giving me everything called salvation as a gift. Where I don't have to work for anything, but only to enjoy what he has done for me. Like to enjoy his accomplished work. It was just outstanding for me. Looking at how he has dealt with sin for man. And how he has given us hope that we can live even beyond these dying bodies. Every time I could share that with someone, they are like, no. It's me who has missed the mark. It's me who has missed the point. It's me who has gone astray. So it was a bit frustrating. So the heart is excited. But then you are living in some fears. Because you feel like if I share this out, people are not going to accept it. Because they are already rejecting it. And, but you could not resist what God was doing in my heart. 
I could try, but there was no way you could resist it because it was by itself producing fruit without my efforts. So as I kept on trying to really bring it out, share with different people, they chased me away and stuff like that. Then eventually, time came and I could not really put up in the same church because we are too much in contrary. We are too much not in agreement. And just because of what the Bible has got to say and uh, what my heart has really kept on believing. So one day when I'm on TV, uh, I watch and then I see one of a, a minister, he's an American, and he was ministering about the grace of God. And every word he was saying, I was like, mm, I agree already with what he's saying. So it's like the first time I'm hearing somebody who can speak the same language of what I've been seeing in the Bible. But I would, I've never had anybody talk about it. Then that's how I actually get into this grace message. I began to grow in it, grow in it. And then one element was left out. I was not comfortable with the way we are being encouraged into different practices in the church. And every time it was like, we need to do something before God can move to do something for us. So it was always, we need to do a manipulative action. And once God is fully manipulated, <laughs> then he'll come out in his, from his hiding. And so it's like it burnt me out because I did it. That's the truth of the matter. I was so zealous because I really loved God. And I was so zealous. You tell me do anything for God is going to do something for you. I would do that. And so and uh, coming from a humble background, I always thought that my life can be better by simply doing something. Please, God. Once God says I am pleased, then money is going to come. <laughs> <laughs> then good life is going to come. Because this is what they are telling us, that you see, we are suffering. We don't have food. We don't have this in Africa. We because, simply because God is not happy with us. So you, like God is so angry with us. God is unhappy with us. So every time you could do something, even coming to church, we never went to church because we loved. No, we went to please God. So that is not very bitter before the week starts. So at least you can begin the week, you know, I'm on the good side of God. I went to church, eh? and things of that nature. So the more we did that, and the more personally I kept on doing these practices, fasting, 40 days, 30 days, what, without food, without anything. And all the idea was, I need to touch the heart of God. I need to please God. Once he's pleased, then he'll come through, and we'll see a better life and stuff like that. Because the gospel was cheapened to think like it's all about materialism. And that is very bad, that they kept on showing us that it's about materialism. But even Jesus himself, when he showed up in this world, he gave us hope of non-material thing. So material cannot be the reason for the gospel that we preach, because it's going to come to an end one day. That's why he has promised us immortality. But we could not see that, because that's not what they were preaching in our environment at that time. So as I kept on studying and then moving in here and there, then I kept on looking at different things. Then one day, I was going through the scriptures and I realized there was a huge difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I began to sense that there was a difference between what the prophets had done and what Jesus had done. Then one of the scriptures that made a turning point for me was John 19.30. When he says, it is 
finished. Then I kept on asking myself, what is that that is finished? What has he finished? Then as I remember one day I in, uh, interacted with one of the great preachers in our country by then. And I asked him, what could be the meaning of this scripture? He told me, ah, that is very simple. Jesus finished his part. But then for you, you haven't finished your part. <laughs> you also need to finish your part. Because for him, he finished his. Now it's yours that is next. And so like all this mix up. Mix up. And then the other thing that uh, really kept on bothering me was all the time that we had to give to, in order for God to prosper us, in order for God to bless us. And literally, I'll be honest, because God knows my heart, the giving, I have no problem with it. But the issue was, we were always told that before God can see anything that you have given, forget about his blessings. Now, I could look at Ephesians 1.3, which says he were blessed with all the blessings. It was contrary to what we were being taught. But we kept on trying to please God so that we can get his blessings. But the challenge that I got with that was that as we kept on uh, being shown how we need to give too much before God can show up and stuff like that, genuinely, our pockets didn't have money to give. But our hearts, we are willing. I remember one of the prayers I used to pray that time was, God, you know I am willing, but it's you who has not given me what to give. And then you are demanding. Give me, I'll show you that I can give. Then I could make all the pledges. God, if you can give me, I'm going to show you. Just, do, just make a risk and give me. Then I'll give you and then you'll also be amazed. Exactly, it's just a risk. And then, like all these things, but when it kept on like running it my life, I really burnt out because of these works. I kept on trying to do, but the more I could do, the more I could see, I cannot accomplish anything. And I settled down and said, you know what, God, if you cannot do it for me, then for me, I have given up. And I said, now, that's exactly what I wanted you to see, that I have done everything for you if you can come to the end of yourself and then begin to appreciate what I have done. Then I began to, I got into a, uh, a friendship with one of the ladies from America and uh, one day when she came back from America, she brings me a book by Pastor Barty. And this book is Jesus is the tithe. Now, the moment I looked at this, the Bible, that's, sorry, the book, just the title, my argument was like, I agree already with everything in that book before even I read it. Now, when I began to read the book, it was life-giving to see the liberty that we have got as far as that giving is concerned. I've heard many people who say, in quotes, they preach the grace of God, but they have not let go of this area. They still want your money. They still want your giving. They still want to show that even under grace, we have to provoke God for him to act. And that is what actually made me so much interested in Pastor Barty. Then I began to follow up his ministry, what he was preaching. And then I realized still, even in grace, there is still a difference. Some people are just talking about it, but they have not brought the real message of what grace is all about. We know the word because it's a simple English word, grace. But the interpretation and the true meaning has not yet surfaced in so many ministries. Be because many people are still using it 
just as another way of getting people into doing what they want them to do. It's just like using it as a tool to control their lives more and more and more. But when you begin to study the scriptures, you realize that the grace of God, it's all about how God has loved on humanity and how God has done everything for humanity. And at the end of it all, he has given this wonderful hope to humanity that what could be the most scare of any living being is death. And he comes in and says, look, I have conquered this death and I've given you hope. The way you see me raised from the dead is the way you shall be. You shall have your body, you shall have your soul, you shall have your, yourself, and at the end of the day, you can live and continue to live without anything that can die on you. And I personally believe that is the message that God wanted to bring out in the whole Bible. Because that was our challenge. We had no solution to that. We could try. If somebody doesn't have, like, if the weather is too hot, you can put on the air conditioner so you can live a little bit in a better environment. But when it comes to the aging and dying, no one will have a good solution for that. If you are hungry and then you are like, you don't want the pizza, then you can find something else. You can bite an apple and then you have a solution there. But then there was something that we didn't have a solution to. And this one was death. And we needed somebody who could bring an ultimate solution to that thing. And that is what the gospel is all about. Because I look at uh, something that uh, personally I want to really share with you today. I have called it the beauty of the gospel. Following all my work in Christianity, I have come to appreciate that the moment you begin to study your Bible, you are going to come out with one conclusion like Paul. There is one gospel, not many. And if it's one gospel, it means it's one message. Not many messages. And if it's one message, then it's very important for us to come to the core of that message. What is the message that God has for the universe? Because when you look at the word beauty, it is very simple. If somebody is a man and looks at a woman and the woman is beautiful, there is that appreciation that you'll come out with. The loveliness that you'll be able to see, the, that splendor in something or in somebody. Like when you look at a flower, you can easily say, this is beautiful, simply because of the way it looks, simply because of the way it has come out for you, and so forth and so on. So I'm looking at the beauty of the gospel. When you come to the heart of it, it is so beautiful to see what the gospel has got to announce, which is so contrary to so many years of what religion has brought. Because in the first place, religion has never been God's idea. This is man's idea. All that God was after is a relationship. That's why he presents out himself and he comes out and reveals himself to us as a father. Family is his concept. That's what he drives with. That's what he works out with. Because if he's a father, then we have to look at so many things in that. There is love in there. There is care in there. And so forth and so on. So when you begin to look at the beauty of the gospel, this is what I look at, that what would be now the gospel? If I'm looking at the splendor, the niceness of everything, now what about the gospel? Very many times people have thought that as long as I've begun with Jesus, uh, in the middle I've put in also some Jesus, then at the end I've also ended with the name Jesus, then I've preached the gospel. That's not true. That's not true. Because when you look at the word itself, it says news, which is too good. 
And that means that each time I'm listening to what they call gospel, it should be good news. It cannot be good in the morning, bad in the afternoon. And then in the evening, it comes moderate. It's good all through. But then this is the time, I believe some of you have even heard about this saying, God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. And that is his nature. Even some add on, wow. But this is the truth of the matter. Someone will say that, and at the end of the day, they will tell us that the disease that I have in my body has been afflicted on me by God himself to teach me a lesson. Every time I have a big challenge in my life, it's God doing that to teach me. But I have never seen any father, a loving father, who inflicts pain on his son or his daughter for the interest of teaching them something. Now, if that cannot be supposed for a natural man, why could we mistake it for God? That's why the Bible says that the gospel is good news. Now, what is the good news that God is announcing? That's why I always ask myself a question. Look at the prosperity gospel all over the world. It's all about materialism. But I always ask myself a question. If we see Genesis, Pastor Bart has just mentioned something about the creation. Then they, they write for us, God takes time, inspires people to write all these things from Genesis to Revelation, and he makes all these events happen. He creates everything, then Adam is there, then the Noah is there, then the Abrahams come, then eventually Jesus comes, he dies on the cross, he rises again, and all this that God is doing through different people, it has only one climax, to give you a car. <laughs> it cannot make sense. Like, God does all these things, and then at the end of the day, yes, I can give you a visa. <laughs> this cannot be the ending result of what we call the gospel. The, that is cheapening the gospel. That's making it too cheap. It has something greater than that. It's not bad to have a car, it's not bad to have a house, it's not bad to have money, but we cannot say that this, the reason as to why Jesus has done all these things is simply for us to have material things. No. No. He actually, his heart was for us to live in a world which is not even dying. And everything we are looking at material has an end. So that cannot be the reason for the preaching of the gospel. There should be something greater than that. That's why when you begin to look into the heart of the gospel and begin to unveil it, begin to really get into the depth of it, then we begin to discover that there is something that the church missed. And I'll be honest with you, I have not had many preachers put an emphasis on that apart from Pastor Batty. This is not to praise Pastor Batty, but I'm being honest with you. Very few preachers who draw their attention on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And yet, if you begin to look at scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, the whole Bible was about bringing that clarity. And that's what I want to show you. That the entire Bible was just about to bring one sole clarity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how it's beneficial to humanity. Not just a car. Because I'll be happy without a car, but knowing I can live. That's the thing. That's why you can find anybody happy 
You see, this is what has happened to us in the church. That they have given us this false temporal hope. That when you do this thing, then you get money, then you find your hope and joy in money. That's why if time you don't have something, you don't have any material thing, you are lacking it, you feel like you are not happy. Because your joy is rooted in a temporal thing. That's why when your car breaks down, you are so disturbed. Because the whole of your life is in there. Your life is not in Christ. You don't find your peace in God. You find your peace in everything around you. You find your peace in your house. So when the wind comes and blows off your roof, you're like, I am finished. My life is gone now. That's why anything can cause stress, anything can cause distress. We can be miserable, and yet there is no reason for our being miserable simply because Christ is risen and he has been given unto us. The moment we begin to look at him, then we can live with joy, knowing even what could disturb our physical lives, it is temporal. We have a sure hope in him which surpasses every distress of this life. But then man has been told that, you know what, when you do this, then the distress will go away. Then they do it, they become more distressed. Because that cannot give us hope. The true hope is in Christ. That's what First Timothy chapter 1, verse 1 says, that our hope is Christ. Which Christ? The risen one. That's why if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12 down to 14, what does the Bible tell us? That if Christ was not risen, then what we are preaching is empty, and what we call faith is empty. And he goes down, when he proceeds down, he says, if all our hope has been in the risen Christ, and we find out that the man never rose, then we are the most miserable people in this world. But the joy of the Lord is, and this is our heart's joy. We are not miserable because it is true. God himself, the Father, has testified of raising his son from the dead. We have a report. We have a record. We have a testimony. That's what gospel is all about. It's a report. Someone comes out to announce what has happened. When we say this is news, it means I am reporting to you what has transpired somewhere. What has taken place somewhere. What has happened. So when God comes out and says, now I'm announcing. What are the good tidings he's announcing to us? Not to give us a BMW. No, that cannot be. Our life can outlive it. It's beyond that. That's why when he says, this is now the glad tidings, what is he trying to point us to? He's pointing us to the resurrected Christ. That's why Paul says that without this resurrection thing, the whole concept of gospel, faith, and everything we preach is zero. And that is the challenge we got, that, and that is what the church has undermined. That's why our messages have been full of hell and heaven and geographical locations. It's like going to Cape Town when you are going to hell. Then you are like going to Johannesburg when you are going to heaven. So you will choose which direction. And so what has come out, go and listen to most of the preachers. Or you can have a flashback. 
All the messages we have listened to for years and years and years have created fear. We are so fearful. That's why questions could not be answered. Because man has not interacted with a true message which brings joy and love and peace. But he has interacted with a counterfeit which has instilled fear in our lives. We are fearful from the day we enter this world until the day we go out. And simply because of what we are listening to. It's not a good news. And that's not God's idea. God's idea is to make us contented and so much fully persuaded of what he has planned and brought to pass through Jesus Christ by raising him from the dead. That's why when we continue and look at Romans chapter number 10, the verses 9, this is what Paul says, that if somebody believes that Jesus was raised from the dead, shall be saved. Don't believe it. We, we, we appreciate the incarnation of God. God putting on flesh and all this. But this is all a vehicle to the real thing. The real thing is, is Jesus out of the grave? Yes. How is he out of the grave? He has a body, but this body cannot die. And he says, as you have seen him come out of the grave, I promise you, and I'll keep my promise. And the guarantee for my promise is raising him. As I rose him, I'll also raise you. Then with him, Jesus risen from the dead, we have a guarantee and a proof that God is true to his promise. When we talk about the promises of God, this is what I found. I don't know if somebody has come across Ephesians chapter number 3 verse 20. Many times people quote this scripture. God can do exceedingly, abundantly, above all we can think or even imagine. But many times that scripture has been put in a wrong concept and a wrong context. That we look at material things that, oh, if God can do exceedingly above all, what I can ask, if I ask for a car, it's going to give me my own chopper. <laughs> because you can do exceedingly what you have done, what? Asked. But that was not the context. The context was beyond that. That man wanted to live. But then he was dying. And God did much more than what man can ask. Check all our prayer requests. We have never asked for immortality. For all the years we have been in salvation. We have never asked for that. When somebody is asking too much with the wrong message, when we are asking for life, we are like, God, give me many years to live. No! That's not his will for you. His will for you is for you to live forever. That's why he promised eternal life. That's what Titus chapter 1 verse 1 to 2 says. God promised us eternal life before the world was formed. Before the foundation of the world. Why? He doesn't just want us to have many years in the flesh. No. Because even if you have 900 years, the flesh will die. He says, no. I can give you much more than 100 years. I can give you much more than 900 years. I am going to give you immortality. That's the news. That's what he's pointing us to. So when we see all this, let's look at Second uh, Timothy. The chapter is 1, and the verse is 7 down to, to, to 10. I'll, I'll use Pastor Barty's Bible. Just read through that very fast. 
Second Timothy chapter 1. And the verse is 7. He says, For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love, and of sound mind. But imagine people with a sound mind, what we believe about God. So many times it's weird. And we are not to blame. None of us is to blame. Actually, this is my honest heart. I don't even blame any preacher for the wrong teachings. Reason is one. That's what they were taught. That's what they coped. For those who never learned, they coped it somewhere. And so they brought it forth. And then it was seemingly trying to bring in. That's why when you look at most of the messages, it is building the last for man. It is last. That's why the preachers want more money. They want better cars. They want everything. And then they also create that in the followers. Even with the followers, we begin that. We are just lasting for everything around us. That's why we think we are now in a good life. Because all the materialism is part of us. But he goes down and says in verse number 8, But not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. What is the testimony? I love the way John puts it. If I can just run there for you in First John chapter number 5. And the verse is 11. Actually, can begin even with 10. He says, He that believes on... That is verse 10. He that believes of the God... He that believes on the Son of God has the witness in himself. He that believes not God has made him a liar because he believes not the record that God gave of his Son. Some versions say a testimony that God gave of his Son. The witness that God has given. And this is the testimony. He goes down and says, and this is the record. This is the good news. This is the report. This is the announcement. That God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. So that means if you got the son Jesus, that's the life. So that means in simple terms, we can say that Jesus Christ is eternal life himself. And that's the good news. Having him as our eternal life. Then he goes down and says in verse 12, that he that has the son has life, and he has not the son has no this life. Then if we go back to our first Timothy, he goes and says, and but not therefore ashamed of the testimony of Jesus Christ, nor of me, his prisoner. What is the testimony? He's risen from the dead. That's the record. That is what we have on record. The first man. Many were dying, many were whatever, many were resurrected. Even Elijah raised a lot of people, but none of them rose with immortality. It's only Jesus. That's why the Bible says in Romans chapter number 1 verse 4 that God declared him to be his son by the resurrection. And I love the way also Peter puts it in First Peter chapter 1, verse 3. He says, we have been born again. We have been begotten of God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's why what we believe is about, we believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. Then we have believed the true gospel. Then he goes down here and says in verse number 9, 
before you go to verse number nine, it says, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel, according to the gospel, the power of God, who has saved us and called us. Now, I love verse nine. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works. So our works are excluded. It's not how many times you have done something. No, this is God serving us. You know, we have grown up with the mentality. That is me particularly. We grew up with the mentality that we are, called, we are here in this world to serve God. And if you don't serve God, then you have answers to prepare before you can leave this world. Because God will put you on the table and you must answer. Why didn't you serve him? So we have been built up to think that we are created by God to serve him. And that is not true. God's idea was simply to share all that he had as life in himself with another person. And that is us. Not to make us servants. If God wanted servants, why does the, the, doesn't the creation story start with on the first day and God created man to assist him down the road of his creation style? Because the first day would have been man created so that he can help God. Run and bring this tree, then we can put it here. Run and bring this one. Because if he needed servants, but that's not what he did. He first did everything which he knew this is nice for my man. This is nice for human. Then he put it in place. Then he says, man, now I can bring you forth. When he brought man forth, what was man's first day in the garden? Resting. It was a restful day. After the sixth day, the seventh day it was resting. So man begins knowing that resting is the heart of God. But we are so restless. He goes on and says, affliction of the gospel according to the power of God, uh -huh. who has saved us and called us according to the works, but, not, but uh, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ before the foundation of before the world began. But now is made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death, and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That through the gospel, we have seen this brought to light. We have seen the very life of God shown unto us. And that life is Jesus. Jesus is the message of the world. Is the life of God that we can look at. And he says, this is coming through by the gospel. That means the gospel should be all about what God has done, accomplished in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why when we talk about Jesus Christ, what is his personality? What is his urgency? What has he done? And so forth and so on. This is what he's revealing to us. Now, just for interest of time, I wish we had more time, but I want to bring out this thing just to make myself much more clearer. When you look at the book of Revelation, this is a book I was scared to study for the whole of my life. There is no preacher I ever listened to in my life that ever talked about anything from the book of Revelation and the ending result is not fear. The moment they could begin, now we are turning to the book of Revelation. So, ha, God, can you wait a little bit? Why? Because there is this so-called end time message 
which has never revealed the heart of God, but has only revealed how God is so bitter, so dangerous. You are in a state whereby you don't know what is going to happen to you. Now, we have an assurance. We know the heart of God. That's why John, when he's writing, he says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, that look how wonderful this is, how beautiful this is, how God has loved us to be called his children. And that is who we are. He goes down and says, we know what we are now, but what we shall be is not yet even known to us. But when we look at Christ, we can tell. How shall we look like? We shall look like the risen Christ. Now, this is all showing how much God loves you and me. And this is all by his doing. That's what Timothy is showing us. By his grace, not by our works. His grace has done it. His works have done it. We are on the receiving side. We receive on his love. We receive on his grace. We receive on everything that he has done. And we enjoy a life that is beyond the physical. We are not like those without hope. Our hope is Christ. So when he comes down and then he begins to share this, when you look at the book of Revelation, many times people say, book of Revelation is just about hell and what and stuff like that. So it's disastrous. The moment somebody says book of Revelation, we think it's the most hard book to understand. But with the understanding of the resurrected Christ, you can understand every bit of that book. Personally, I have drawn an interest in eschatology. And I've discovered that the eschatology that the church has been taught has never been consistent with the gospel. Because the Bible is very clear. God is love. And love casts out fear. So when I'm listening to something that is simply bringing more fear to me, then I have to question. That cannot be it having its source in God. Because anything that has its source in God should bring some love to me. That's it. He doesn't act in the morning out of love, then in the afternoon he's so much loving. That's not God. He's consistent. That's why he's dependable. That's why he's reliable. He's so consistent. He's in nature and action. Now, when we look at the book of Revelation, just a little bit of it from verse number one down to verse number two. Just let's run there because I want to bring out something of the resurrection from there. Oh, my Lord Jesus. Revelation chapter 1. So you shouldn't scare yourself with this book. It's a wonderful book. The revelation, now, that's where the church missed the, on the very first line. The Bible says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. There. So whatever we are going to study from the whole book, what is this supposed to reveal? Jesus Christ. The moment they add Christ, what are we looking at? The risen one. Those are the two the paradigms of Christ. The born Jesus and then the resurrected Christ. So he's saying that this is a revelation. If you all remember, the literature which was used when they are writing the book of Revelation is pictorial. They use the pictures. So you need to understand how do pictures communicate. These are visions. John is saying, I saw a vision. He was in a trance. And he was seeing all these things. So how did the trans bring a message? That's why there are two things which are crucial at this point. We normally use it when we're interpreting the Bible. 
There is what we call a literal interpretation and a figurative interpretation. When something is figurative, it simply means somebody is using a picture of something to help you understand what they want you to understand. It's like when God says in, uh, in, in the Gospels that, and the sower went out to sow. And when he sowed the seeds, then at the harvest, he got, uh, some got 30, some got 60, others got 100. He's not saying that now we are going to sow money. And he's not trying to say that now God wants every Christian a farmer. These are physical illustrations to bring a message to us. Let me give you another one. We always, we always be, know and we have always heard and we believe that Jesus is the Lamb of God. It does not mean that literally Jesus is the Lamb, you are going to find him on his four legs. <laughs> but they are trying to give you what was a, the, the interpretation in the mind of those people at that time. What, whenever they could hear about a Lamb, what came to their minds? They were looking at an atonement. So it's like how the Lamb would do it. This is what Christ has done. When they say Christ is the Lion of Judah, you're not going to go and search for him in the den of lions. So, mm, he must be hiding there. No, these are just figurative speeches to help somebody understand his greatness. So in the figurative speech is what mainly dominated in this book. So when John says, and the, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, unto who? Unto John. So all this is supposed to reveal Jesus Christ. But we have narrowed it down to only say, this is the revelation of the end of the world. I'll be honest with all of us. From Genesis to Revelation, one message is taught. Jesus Christ. So if you open the scripture and you're not seeing Jesus, revisit it again until when you see Jesus. Over and over and over. Now he goes down and says, unto him, these servants, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God. Now, that's very important. John, he's showed this vision, but he's already bearing a record of the word of God. You remember what John writes for us in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1 to 3. He says, what was in the beginning? We touched. That's bearing record. It's like we are talking about the real message. This life which is eternal was with God the Father. But then it happened to us, and we saw it by our own eyes. What is John saying? We saw the risen Christ. We saw him. We touched him. Because remember, even told Thomas after his resurrection, if you doubt that it's not me, touch my palms. That's what John is giving a witness to. We touched him, and the man was real. That's the life we are in contact with. Then he goes down and says, and bear a record of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Then he goes down and says, blessed is he that reads. And then look at verse number five for interest of time. 
and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead. That should give us the context. That that's what John is looking at, the first begotten of the dead, the resurrected Christ. Then he goes on and says, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from all our sins in his own blood. Then we run down to verse number 10. The rest you can read on your own interest. Then he goes, and I was in the spirit. He says, I was in the spirit. When you look up that, the Bible says that he was in a transvision. And he saw this in a vision on the Lord's day. And he heard behind me a great voice of a trumpet. Now, he's in a transvision. And what is he hearing? A voice behind him of a trumpet. Now, when you look at what we call prophetic context, hearing a voice behind you means whatever you are hearing has already taken place. If you can go and make much more search about that. It means the, whatever you are hearing, it has already happened. So where, what is he actually showing him or what is God showing this wonderful brother of ours, John? The Bible says, saying, the voice was saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book and send it to the seven churches. Then he names them. Then he comes to verse 12. And I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. Now, this is so simple, but very important to see the resurrection of Christ. First, John has had the voice behind him, which means prophetically, this is something that has happened already. If you remember very well, for some of you have been reading the Bible, in Genesis chapter number 22, there was an instance of Abraham and God. And this instance is so wonderful that Abraham was asked by God to go and sacrifice the child. And on their way, the child asks a very important question right from verse number 7 down to verse number 13. That's why you get what I'm talking about in Genesis chapter 22. Now, a child asks, this is Isaac now, the fire I can see and the wood I can see, but where is the sacrifice daddy? Which means it was a normal thing. The child knew what they could do when they go out for worship. And this is what Abraham responds with. God shall provide. Then when Isaac heard that, he was like, okay, great, let's move. But little did he know that God was supplying him. So when they got there, everything was prepared, the altar was prepared, and then the sacrifice, I'm sure Isaac waited to see how God is going to provide. Only Abraham to grab him and tell him, now you are going to be the one on the altar. The Bible says he bound him very well, placed him there. But you can imagine a little child crying out and saying, God, I, Dad, I asked you all these things. And then Abraham doesn't even want to listen. But as he was about to chop the voice from behind, what does that mean? He had already done this thing before the foundation of the world. He had already provided Christ for us. Then when he heard the voice, the voice is telling him what? Turn around. Turn where? Behind. 
Why turn behind? Prophetically in context, that means what you are looking out for has already been done. It's not going to be done by you, Abraham. God has already supplied. And when Abraham turned around, he saw a ram. This is a male sheep. And it's what he got and placed on the altar and sacrificed, which was a shadow of Jesus Christ. Now, God is drawing John back to the prophetic messages to see, to show him that look at what prophecy was saying and look at what you have touched and bear witness of. It is true. It is consistent. What the prophecy said and what you have bared witness is the same thing. Then he goes down and shows us that after that, the Bible says that when John turned behind, what did he see? He's turning to see the voice. Who is speaking? He simply sees a candle stand. When he saw a candle stand, it is beautiful to know. Let's turn to Exodus. Exodus chapter number 25. Yes. Exodus chapter 25. Oh, running through this page. Let me just use my phone. Because time is not on our side. Exodus 25. We can look at verse 36 to 37. But it will give us a clear view if we looked at verse, only verse 34 first, then we look down to verse 36 and 37. Now, 34 says, And in the candlestick shall be four bows made like unto almonds with their knots and their flowers. Now, when you look at what they used to call a candlestick in the Old Testament format, it was like, it was something that was a single, we could call it a single uh, metal that is beaten and hammered properly. Then they bring out these three on one side and then three on the other side and then one in the middle. But it was a single thing. Now, when he talks about that, he saw a candlestick. When you have time, you'll go and look at the whole chapter of Exodus. It will tell you how everything came to be. But he's showing him that, look back into the shadow, how I began to show you what you have actually bared witness of. That in this candlestick, what was there, this is what we are seeing here, that in the, in the candlestick shall be four bowels. So whenever you could look into the candlestick, what are you seeing? The four bowels made like unto almonds. So what are you seeing? You are seeing the almonds in this candlestick. And then he says, and their canopy, and then their flowers. Then when you go down to verse number 36 for interest to five, he says, and their canopies and their branches shall be of the same at all, at all it shall be one beaten work of a pure gold. That was what I just explained. But verse 37. And thou shalt shall make the seven lamps thereof, and they shall light the lamps thereof, that they may give light over against it. Now, this is what we have to see here. 
He says, there are seven lamps, but these seven lamps, they are giving light. But their light is going to the front. As they are seated here, let's imagine, let's say we have uh, seven, then I just use one of my fingers, then we have like seven. Now, whenever they could give the light inside there, the light was not beaming going backwards. The light was beaming going to the front, which was saying that it was a prophetic message of the light of the world, which was yet to come. And we all know from John chapter number 1, from verse 1 to 4, that Jesus Christ is the light of men. John repeats it in John chapter 8, verse number 12, that Jesus said, I am the light of the world. So this light that we are seeing, prophetically, they were already seeing the coming Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. That's why it is in the Old Testament, but it's beaming towards the front, which means time is coming when this is going to come to pass. Why does God draw Johnny's attention back to it? He wants to show him that, look, what was expected, it is here, and you have bared witness. What they expected is what you are seeing. What they expected to see is what you are experiencing. The reason Christ is what you have before you. Then when you go down, the other thing that is also very interesting is when you look at the almond tree, Uganda is blessed with such a weather that it's almost consistent throughout the year. Just have rains and uh, sun, temperatures are always normal. 30, 25, we don't go beyond that. But from a particular few uh, parts of the country in the north, which can go to 40, but that's once in a long while. But our weather is always very normal. But if you go to different other geographical locations of the world, like Europe, like Asia, even I think Cape Town, and so many other places, they always experience different weather seasons. They have the spring, they have the summer, we hear about the winter, all these things we just hear about them. We don't experience them. But we hear about the winter, we hear about all these things. Now, this is the, <laughs> this is the beauty of what the almond tree are got to bring out for us. That when you look at almond as itself, it's just a prophetic tree. In sense that when you look at a season or a geographical location of the world which has a season which we could call winter, during winter all the trees and all plants will actually shed off their leaves and they will be as good as dead. Especially if it even is snowing there and there is a lot of snow falling down, it will be as good as a stone. Now, when the winter is coming to an end, the first tree to bring out a leaf, call it a flower, is actually almond. And when the almond flowers come, then you know winter has come to an end. So why was it used? It was used prophetically to point at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the first begotten of the dead, the first one to come out of dead. That's why if you want to prove that proper, you can consistently look at it with Jeremiah. Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 1. I love the way God speaks to Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 1. And the verse will be, we can look at verse 11. Jeremiah says, 
Moreover, the word of God came unto me, saying, Jeremiah, what seest thou? And I said, I see a rod of an almond tree. Are we seeing that? Now, Jeremiah is asked by God, what are you seeing? What is his response? All that I'm seeing is a rod of an almond tree. And prophetically, this I've already told you, it was pointing to the resurrected Christ. It was pointing to the resurrection. So what is Jeremiah seeing? Jeremiah, during that time, he's already having his eyes set on the resurrection. And guess what? The next verse is what is my most beautiful one in this. Then said the Lord unto him, Thou hast well seen. So what does that mean? Jeremiah has seen well. Why has he seen well? He has seen an almond tree. The only way you are going to see well is when you see the risen Christ. Until when you can see Christ raised from the dead, I guarantee you will never see the gospel well. And you never see the beauty of the gospel. The beauty will only come out and you begin to see the gospel clearly when you can see the risen Christ from the dead as the first begotten, but an assurance for everybody. Now, if Jesus is the first begotten, as Revelation chapter 1, verse 5 says, is the first born out of the dead. This is very important. Remember, Colossians chapter 1 verse 18 says, Jesus is the head and the church is the body. So the church and, uh, uh, the church and Christ are one. Christ is the head and the church is the body. For all of us who are ladies in this, home, in this room, and all of us who are gents who have participated when our baby is about to be delivered in the hospitals, this is what every scientist will tell you. That once the head of a baby comes out, you are less assured that no part will remain inside. Does it make some sense? Once a child's time of being delivered out of the womb comes, and the head comes out of boom, then the rest will come out by all means. Are we together? So once we have the, the head risen, from the dead. It's a guarantee that all of us shall. That's what he's talking about. So Jesus is the first one who came out. And then this is the guarantee that we have, that we are all going to come out. But when the head is not yet out, then you are not sure what is going to happen. Are we going for scissors or are we going for anything else? But once the head comes out, that's an assurance in our hearts that the rest of the body parts are going to come through. And that is what Jesus has done for us. So when we look at what Jeremiah was seeing, he was busy seeing the resurrected Christ. He was busy looking at the resurrection. And that was prophetically in the almond tree. That's why God says, you have seen well. Because when you look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what are you looking at? You are looking at the proof of your righteousness. You are looking at the proof of your life. You are looking at the fulfillment of God's promises. You are looking at all the life that God has ever assured you of. Because that is the evidence that we got. Allow me to end it off with uh, Romans chapter number 4. Because it's also beautiful for me. 
When you look at Romans chapter number 4, verse is 19 down to 22, what does the Bible say? It talks about a man called Abraham. And many times when we look at those verses there, our only thing is settled on faith. And faith has been wrongly also taught. Because we have been taught many times that we have to do something to get faith. But I want to correct that. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing the message of God. When I have my mind and my heart, my all being, listening to the good news, what will happen? Faith will come to me. It will automatically be born in me. I don't do something to make it. Rather, what I listen to is what will cause it to be. That's what Romans chapter 10 and the verse 17 talks about. So if faith comes by hearing, actually the paraphrased Greek will say that faith has its source in the message you had. And the message is Christ, meaning the resurrected one. So if the message is the resurrected Christ, the moment I begin to listen to the resurrected Christ as the message that I'm giving my whole being, faith will automatically work in me. That's why when you look at what Abraham says, Abraham, the Bible says that uh, Abraham believed God and he was not, did not even stagger at the promise of God. What was the promise of God? I'm going to bring a life forth through you. What did God promise in humanity? God promised us eternal life. And so, how don't we stagger? We don't stagger at that promise. Why? Because we have a proof. He has raised Jesus from the dead. So, faith is not something we do. Faith is something that is born out of the messages we are listening to. You listen, you listen to the right message, faith will automatically work in you. It's like if I equated it to a fuel in a car. That your engine of the car will not start if there is no fuel in the, in the tank. But the moment you supply fuel there, you don't have to come into your engine and then try to beg it to start. So as long as you have supplied it fuel, it will run the miles you want. As long as you have not supplied it fuel, you cannot have it even start for one minute. Now, that is what has been done by our smart God. He has supplied everything through the gospel. That when we listen to the true message of the resurrected Christ, itself will work in us to bring forth fruits of the life of God in us. That's what it's all about. Now, when you go down, then something that I wanted to point out just briefly was two people were in this. We have Abraham and we have Sarah. Both of them, by natural limitations, they are all old and they could not bring forth life. The Bible says that the womb of Sarah was as good as dead. Abraham was very old to even give birth. Now, what happens next? The Bible says that because Abraham believed in the promise and he did not stagger at the promise of God, what did God promise? He promised to bring a life through them. Even when the natural could not tell that, he promised to bring a life through them. So every circumstance could not even be in support of what was going to happen. And to make it very smart, if you look at Genesis and begin to look at the account of Abraham, this is not something that just happened coincidentally. Most of the ancestors of Abraham usually had their firstborns when they are 29 to 35 years. It's only a few of them, like two of them and his father, who were at 70. So the man is now 75. It has never happened in the history of his lineage. They have always had children at that moment. 
but he has not even got the first one. So it's disturbing. But God says, no, as much as your body and your body looks as good as dead, I'm going to bring a life through you. What was not a shadow of? It was a shadow of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the reason as why we see the womb of Mary, which is as good as dead. Out of a dead womb came life. Out of the grave, where we know it's only death in there, Jesus came out with life eternal. So that's what we are looking at. That when we look at the womb of Mary, bring forth Isaac. It was simply pointing us to look how God has brought life out of dead. And the first one is Jesus Christ. Is the guarantee of everything. So the moment we begin to look at all this, what are we going to conclude? One other thing that is so beautiful is God loves what he did. And he wants to preserve what he did. What did he do? God created humans. And he wants to preserve humanity. Because that is love. Last, last day, Pastor Barty took me around and showed me around on the table, uh, table mountain. It was so beautiful. I loved what I saw. I was like, I feel we can just make a tent here. And it don't go away. But then we had to go. We had limited time. But the thing was so beautiful. But now, what did I, in the many things that we are talking, he mentioned something that I really loved. He said, for years, he has been to that thing since 1974. Been going there regularly, or often or something like that. And I was like, <clears throat> since 1994 to date, I asked him a question. When you look at the nature you are seeing here now, is it looking the same like the way it was in 94? And he said, yes, the plants are almost the same thing. And then he began to take me through how they have preserved that thing. That you're not supposed to throw anything like a plastic there. You throw it there, you are in for it. So what are they trying to do? They are trying to preserve nature. Now, where can that be coming from? From only God. It's only God who wants to preserve the beautiful things he has done. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are so beautiful in his eyes that he wants to preserve you forever and ever. And in order for you to be preserved by him forever and ever, that's why he says, I'm going to preserve you by giving you immortality. That you can be mine forever and ever. That's how he has preserved us. That he may continue to look at the beautiful us forever and ever. That's the good news. Now, the other thing that was also very profound about this beautiful thing is the beauty that you look at. Now, I asked Pastor Bart that, look, if we can look at this whole place and we can say it's beautiful because of how man has organized it, has tried to preserve it, and so forth and so on. Now, what about when God looks at us as humans? We are his idea is the designer of our being. When he looks at us and how beautiful he has made us to be, what would be the conclusion in his mind? It would be, look how beautiful my people are. But because of wrong messages, we look at ourselves and we even raise our hands and say, oh Lord, I'm not even worthy to be here. If a child is not worthy to be in the presence of his father, who will ever be worthy? We are worthy to be in his presence. He loves us, he adores us because he has faithfully come out with this beauty that is shining on us as his dear children. 
That's why he loves us so much. That's why we are so dear to him. That's why he can do anything simply because we are so beautiful to him. He, we, no one forced him into coming up with the concept of us as humanity. It was out of his love. It was out of his grace. It was out of his desire. That's why even if we are facing anything in our daily lives, this is very key. Let's go back and begin to look at the resurrected Christ. Is the true explanation of God's love for us. That the moment you see Jesus is rose from the dead, you'll see the love of God for you. The moment you see Jesus is risen from the dead, you'll see the righteousness he has given you. The moment you see Jesus is risen from the dead, you'll see how holy you are before him. The moment you see Jesus is risen from the dead, the moment you'll see how complete you are in the being of God. Amen. Let's give thanks. Father, we thank you so much for the love that you got for each one of us. And we are grateful for your grace. We are grateful for everything that has come through. And we thank you that because Jesus rose from the dead, we have our hope in the right source, which is not going to just bring a temporary joy in our hearts, but a permanent joy. Because what you did in Christ and brought forth eternal life to us, it is permanent and for eternity. We have thanked you for everything that we have seen, experienced, and we shall continue to see in the scriptures by your wonderful spirit in us. We are so grateful for Christ's resurrection because it has mounted everything to be all the message that we ever needed to hear. We thank you for the peace in our hearts and for the joy that we are going to live with for the rest of our lives in Jesus' mighty name. Everyone says, Amen. Amen. Thank you so much.